Welcome to the Trinity's Podcast, where we explore theories about the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Do you love God enough to think about Him? Episode 69, James Lee on the Trinity and Ontological Pluralism. Mr. James Lee is a Ph.D. student in philosophy at Syracuse University in Syracuse, New York. He holds a B.A. in economics from Emory University in Atlanta and a master's in philosophy from the University of Wisconsin-Milwaukee. Mr. Lee specializes in metaphysics and epistemology and also knows about philosophy of language, logic, ethics, and philosophy of religion. In this episode of the Trinity's podcast, we'll hear him present his paper, his ways of being are not our ways, a presentation he gave in fall of 2014 at the Society of Christian Philosophers meeting in Niagara, New York. This paper won an award for the best graduate paper submitted to the conference. In it, he explores how we might apply some ideas from recent metaphysics to the problem of the Trinity. The problem, in his view, is set up by the so-called Athanasian Creed. It looks like it says that there are three beings each of whom is God, and yet there is only one God. And it looks like it couldn't be that all three of those things are true. So what Mr. Lee calls the initial formulation of Trinitarian claims looks like it's demonstrably incoherent. I go into this in an informal way in the blog post for this episode at trinities.org. He then discusses how other analytic theologians have made some distinctions so that this contradiction goes away and then we're left with a group of apparently consistent claims. He discusses three such ways and finds them each to be problematic, and he explores a fourth way. The theory that Mr. Lee applies to the Trinity is called ontological pluralism, and the basic idea is that not only are there different kinds of beings, but there are different kinds of being. In other words, if you say that something exists... That word exists is ambiguous. It might refer to one of several different sorts of existence. And those sorts of existence or ways of being are fundamental to reality. This idea has been recently explored and defended by one of Mr. Lee's professors at Syracuse University, Dr. Chris McDaniel. On the blog post for this episode, I've put links to Dr. McDaniel's homepage and publications if you want to look into that. Also posted is the very well-done one-page handout that Mr. Lee distributed at this talk. If you take a look at that handout while you're listening, it will help you to follow along with what he's saying. Here, then, is Mr. James Lee presenting his paper, His Ways of Being Are Not Our Ways. All right. I'd like to thank you guys for coming out. I'd like to thank uh, the Society of Christian Philosophers for just uh, giving me a chance to talk about this paper, hopefully get some good feedback. Uh, In this paper, I'd like to defend a view on the Trinity that doesn't seem to... I I haven't found anybody that's discussed this view, so it seems like it's uh, a new view, and I'd just like to kind of run it by you guys and see what you guys think. I'm going to do a quick survey, talk about all the other views, and how this one particular view that I'm defending, how it's contrasted with the others, and then give a little bit of a sales pitch for the view, and then we'll talk and see what you guys think. There's like a general consensus that the doctrine of the Trinity is sort of summarized. 
by three claims. And if you have the handout, you can see up top, right? So everybody pretty much agrees that this is what the Trinity is all about. First claim is that the Father is not the Son, Father is not the Holy Spirit, Son is not the Holy Spirit. They are distinct. Second claim is that the Father is God, the Son is God, and the Spirit is God. And then the third claim is that there is exactly one God. And so this is one way of kind of you know, stating what you find in you know, common source material, which is like the Athanasian Creed or whatever. Now, people see this and they get this you know, intuition, and it's pretty plausible that there's something wrong with this uh, set of statements, that it's incoherent somehow. And one way to really kind of make that incoherence explicit and what helps me think about these issues is to kind of just take these statements and formulate them using something like first order predicate logic. So a common one way of interpreting these statements is to say this. Like for instance, you take the terms father, son, and spirit, you think, oh, these must be names. And so we're going to apply you know, constants and say, for instance, that the father and the son, not identical, right? And father, spirit, not identical. Finally, son, not identical to the spirit. Right? Using the letters FR and S as uh, constants for singular terms. Right? This is our first claim. Second claim says that Father is God, Son is God, Spirit is God. So one way you might think, okay, well, what is God in this case? Oh, it must be expressible with like a predicate. That might be one common way to interpret that claim. So you have, in predicate logic, you have this sentence. The Father is God, the Son is God, and the Holy Spirit is God. And then finally, you have the claim there is exactly one God. And this is, takes a little more, it's a little more complex, you know. But it's also you know, easily expressible in first order logic. You say something like, well, there exists an X such that X is God. And for all Y, if it's the case that Y is God, then X is identical to Y, right? That's how you can make these kinds of numerical claims using predicate logic. Now that we have this, right, if you've taken logic or you've taught logic, then you can see how you can easily prove that this is a mutually inconsistent set of claims. So this is no good as an interpretation of the doctrine of Trinity. And so in the discussions, one goal in creating theories of the Trinity is to create a mutually consistent set of sentences, right, to get rid of the incoherence. And so the way I understand these discussions and these sorts of views that they're defending is they're going to take one of these and change it to make a mutually consistent set. So that's one goal. And that's the easy part. Right? The hard part is then to defend that view as being both philosophically and theologically plausible. And so let me go over the three views in circulation. Now I should say that you know, the way that I formulate them doesn't, you know, it's not like you have to accept this if you consider yourself a social trinitarian. It's more of a heuristic, right? So not a lot hangs on the formulation. It's just one way of understanding what they're talking about when they are defending their views. So you have three views. One is called social trinitarianism. Another is called Latin trinitarianism. And then there's one that I, the, the name is what I made up, but it's like a sort of a grouping of views. I call them alternative identity views, but there are at least two on the market that I'll cover. When people talk about social Trinitarianism, they use this language. They say, well, we start with the threeness, with the Trinity. You start there and then try to get the monotheism part, right? Try to explain that. How, what does that mean? Well, one way of interpreting that is to say, well, they keep the first two claims and say, yeah, 
first two claims are correct as interpretations, right? The first two formulations. So Father, Son, Father, Spirit, Son, Spirit. This is the correct interpretation of uh, the English uh, sentence as part of the doctrine of the Trinity, right? And so they're like, yeah, that's true. That's the right way to interpret it. And they say, yeah, this is also the right way to interpret the second, the second sentence. So far, so good. So that's their starting point. They say, okay, yeah, this gets us the Trinity, the divine persons, the three persons. But they say the third claim is interpreted incorrectly. And so they reject that interpretation and they give something like this. Instead of treating God in this case as a predicate, they might treat it as a constant. So when they say there is exactly one God, they think you might think that one way of uh, understanding social Trinitarianism is to interpret God as you know, a referring term, a singular term. And so if you give this alternate interpretation, no more inconsistency. You have a set of mutually consistent uh, sentences. Okay? So that's one possibility, one solution on the table. So social Trinitarianism, this is a you know, fairly popular view. You have uh, several people that defend this, like uh, Richard Swinburne, for instance. Uh, William Lane Craig and J.P. Moreland defend a version of social Trinitarianism. I think William Hasker also does, Edward Wieringa. And they'll tell us that, well, this G refers to, you know, what it refers to differs from who you ask. So Swinburne might say it's something like a closely knit community or something like that. Or if you ask Moreland and Craig, they might say, well, it's something like, I don't know. So they use this example with Cerberus, the three-headed dog. And so it's like a dog then, right? It's they use muriological talk, but they're really cagey about saying that the relationship between the persons and God is you know, a strict like composition kind of relation, because I don't think they want to say that strictly. But they speak in an analogous way. So analogy is going to be big when people talk about Trinity stuff. So you're going to get all kinds of weird stories. So what this is will differ. But the idea is that it's something, and it's a, an individual in its own right in, in some sense. And that's going to lead to problems, and I'll get to that later. So that's one, one theory, one way of getting out of the incoherence problem. The other view is called Latin Trinitarianism. And it starts at the other end. It says, well, we're going to start and accept that God is one. So you have monotheism. That's definitely set. That's the given. And then from there, we're going to try to see how we can get the Trinity, the three divine persons. So in Latin Trinitarianism, they'll say the third claim, the interpretation, that was the right one. There exists an X such that X is God, and for all Y, if Y is God, then Y, X identical, okay? So yeah, they say, yeah, they got the, the initial formulation got the third claim right. It's definitely exactly one God. But then they say, well, the first two claims in our initial formulation, those were incorrect. And so we have to do some reinterpreting there. What they do now is that they take the claims Father, Son, and Spirit and say, well, what went wrong in this case is that we thought that those words were singular terms. They were names, but they're not names. Instead, we're going to treat them like predicates. So for instance, when you say Father, Son, Spirit are distinct, you could say something like this. Like, it's not the case that for all x, gx, if and only if, sx, and, and so on and so forth, right? It's not the case that for all x, X is a member of G just in case X is a member of S or something like that. So this is like an extensional interpretation, but you might say that Father, Son, and Spirit as predicates, they might differ for 
intentional or hyper-intentional reasons. And if that's the case, then you might, instead of giving this formulation, you might just use second-order predicate constants and just say that the predicate father is non-identical to the predicate son, right? Son, not identical spirit, so, so on and so forth, right? Like, on, just as I said on the footnote of the handout that you have. Now, the second formulation is going to keep using predicates for father, son, and spirit and conjoin them with the predicate for God. So to say that the father is God is just to say that there exists an X such that X is, remember, you know, remember the, the God set and father set. There exists, a y, uh, there exists an X, sorry, that, such that X is G and oh, X is S, so on and so forth. So the idea is to not treat father, son, spirit as singular terms, as names. Now, just because there are predicates doesn't necessarily mean that they refer to properties. So we, I'm not saying that the Latin Trinitarian is committed to that. In fact, I think the only person, at least in the literature, that defends Latin Trinitarianism is Brian Leftow. And for him, father, son, spirit, these are supposed to be like life streams or timelines or something like that. So here's another interesting analogy. So he tells this story about you have like a time traveling rocket, right? And so for some weird reason, so there's one person, one member, you guys know what the rockets are. So you go to like, where in New York City do they dance? Radio City? Yeah, Radio City, right? So you go and they do their thing where they kick their legs up in the air. I don't know what they do, right? But so one of the members of the rockets goes to work and realizes that everybody else, for whatever reason, they're all missing. The show must go on. And so she's able to travel backwards in time. So she does the show all by herself. But then she, once the show ends, she gets into her time machine, goes to that point in time right before the show starts, and then goes and starts dancing next to a past version of herself that's already done the dance. And she keeps on going back and back and back in time and keeps on standing next to each, each person until you have a whole row of individuals of rockets doing the dance. And then Lefto raises the question, well, how many people are up there on the stage doing this dance? Is it one person or is it like 20 people? And he tries to use this as a kind of analogy and tries to apply it to God, that God is analogous to this time-traveling rocket. And that each of these predicates, the content of the predicate could be something like a sort of a, a, a stream or you know, one timeline of God, just like you have one, I guess, timeline for this rocket who travels back in time and does the dance. So that's, <laughs> that, that's one way of interpreting these sorts of predicates. So like I said, not necessarily properties. It could be just like a, a section of a narrative or something like that, which is, I think, what sort of what Lefto is getting at. But again, if you do this and reinterpret the first two English sentences of the Doctrine of Trinity to these claims, then again, you get a mutually consistent set of sentences. So that problem is solved. So both social Trinitarianism and Latin Trinitarianism can remove inconsistency. That's easy, okay? There's lots of sentences, right, that you can give that are gonna be mutually consistent. Again, though, is it plausible? Is it theologically plausible? Is it um, philosophically plausible? Get to that later. So that's Latin Trinitarianism. The third view is what I call alternative identity. If you were present for the previous talk, uh, Harriet gave an excellent talk about some issues regarding relative identity. Right? And that's one version of alternative identity. Basically, this view says that, well, we can keep 
the standard sorts of interpretations of the doctrine of the Trinity, but we're going to change how we see or how we use or our conceptions of the logical concepts and use, right, the tools. So for instance, the first claim says that father, son, distinct, and we can keep treating father and son as names, that's not a problem. And, you know, we can treat uh, the second claim as just, a, you know, a claim about predication, that father is God, son's God, spirit's God, no, no problem. And finally, when we say that they're exa exactly one God, we can just, you know, translate it as a claim about predication again. There exists uh, an X such that X is God, and for all Y, right? Y is God, X and Y identical. No problem, right? But here's how you get out of the inconsistency. This equal sign up here, not the same as this equal sign down here. Two different logical concepts at work. And so we're going to have to give this one here a little subscript, like one, and then give this one over here a different subscript, too. And so since this logical concept differs from this one, it blocks the inference to inconsistency. You can't infer from here that you have a mutually inconsistent set of sentences. So this is another way of going about solving the problem. And so relative identity will say, well, you replace these subscripts with something like person, right? So you have a person identity, right? So Father is not the same person as a son, father not the same person as a spirit, so on and so forth. And you replace this two down here with something like, you know, God or whatever, divine being. X is the same divine being or X is the same God as Y. And so relative identity is just that, that type of thesis, that identity is always relative to some kind of sortal. Or that's one way of describing relative identity. Another view that has been recently introduced by Michael Ray and Jeffrey Brower is to say that, well, actually up here, we do have strict identity. And so when we say father and son are distinct, they are distinct in just the normal, orthodox, conservative, absolute sense. But then they say down here, you have another kind of relation at work that isn't absolute identity. And they call it numerical sameness without identity. And so we say, appear that it's true that father is not identical to son and so on and for, so forth in the normal orthodox way. But when we get to this third sentence, it says, for all, I mean, there exists an X such that X is God and for all Y. If Y is God, then X is numerically same but not identical to Y. Different kind of relation at work. And they argue for this by using examples from, you know, the whole statue clay stuff, material constitution that, you know, Statue and clay might be different in one sense, but they're numerically the same in another sense, right? And so that's how, one way of trying to get out of these puzzles about how you have two objects located in the same space. And so they kind of draw lessons from that and, try, and then argue that it can be applied in providing a solution for the problem of the Trinity. So those are the three views that have uh, gotten a lot of attention. I'm gonna move on to the view that I haven't seen any uh, discussion about and what I want to draw your attention to. In order to make these sentences consistent, you know, you fiddle around with a lot of things. You know, you can play with the letters, right? You can, you know, say that, all oh, these are capital letters or lowercase letters, or names or they're predicates or whatever. So that's one way of getting out of the problem. Or you can fiddle with uh, the identity symbol here, right? You can identity predicate. You can say, well, there are just different kinds of identity, different ways in which we can say that X is the same as Y. But nobody's ever really talked about this operator right here. Nobody's ever said, well, maybe there are 
different types of quantification. And maybe you can get a satisfying solution to this problem by focusing on this and rejecting the idea that there is just one existential quantifier. And so this view is currently kind of getting a little steam and people are uh, you know, giving it a little more attention. It's called ontological pluralism. So the people that have defended this include Jason Turner and Chris McDaniel. So full disclosure, Chris is my dissertation supervisor, so this is kind of like I'm being a homer, you know, just like you know, defending ontological pluralism. If you're not familiar with uh, what's going on in metaphysics, the real fashionable thing to do is talk, talk about grounding and fundamentality, right? And so what's really out there? Do we have a language that we can use to talk about what's really, you know, at the bottom of everything? And so Ontological pluralism is often understood as a meta-ontological thesis. It's a thesis about what's the best way to talk about the th stuff that really exists, that grounds everything else. And so McDaniel and Turner argue that when you really want to talk about reality, the best way to do it is to use multiple existential quantifiers. That there are fundamentally different ways of existing. Okay, and so the example that they always give is that, well, you have abstract things and you have concrete things. Metaphysicians love to use this like joint metaphor, right? It's a very deep joint in reality. It's a really deep distinction. And so the best way to carve at that joint is to go all the way down and say that they have two quantifiers ranging over two separate domains. You can't really give a deeper separation than that. And so that's why they think that Pluralism, ontological pluralism, saying that you, know, you have multiple semantically primitive, meaning that you can't define these quantifiers in terms of anything else, having these best expresses or you know, best gives uh, is the best way for us to talk about reality, right? that these sorts of things do a better job at carving at the joints, so to speak. It does a better job than just a single existential, unrestricted existential quantifier, which is the competing view, right? You might call it ontological monism or just sort of the orthodoxy regarding quantification. So ontological pluralism says that you have multiple semantically primitive existential quantifiers, and you know, universal quantifiers too, since they're interdefinable. And they range over separate domains, domains of discourse. That's basically the view. We can take this view and easily apply it to the doctrine of the Trinity what we can do is combine the first two claims, right? and so that's what I have written in the handout, and say, well, there exist three persons under one way of existing. Right? So you can say something like, there exists under one way of existing an X, a Y, and a Z. Right? And then I had this super long claim like X is God, Y is God, Z is God, X, Y, Z, uh, distinct. And then X is identical to the Father, Y is identical to Son, and then uh, Z is identical to Spirit. So that's one claim that combines the first two sentences in the Doctrine of the Trinity. So under one way of existing, Father and Son, Spirit are distinct, Father, Son, Spirit are God. And then under a different way of existing, there is exactly one God. So that's the other formulation. And I just kind of you know, wrote this paper because I just wanted to kind of explore more of the conceptual space. So just to make sure that, you know, every stone has been unturned, right? And to think, what, think about how this might stack up with the other sorts of views. And I think, you know, there's a, there's a good case to be made for it. I mean, you know what they say, right? When someone writes a paper and they 
you know, they're introducing a new view and they're like, eh, I don't know if this is going to be the right one, but at least we should take it seriously, right? And it's like, yeah, please publish my paper because, you know, <laughs> it's, it's something that you sh people should read, right? It's not just some, some kind of crazy view. So let's talk a little bit about that. Let's talk about how it stacks up, how ontological, I call it Trinitarian ontological pluralism, how it stacks up against the other views. And the way that I sort of break it down is that I, I, I make this sort of distinction between logically conservative views and then logically revisionary views. And so what I say is that social Trinitarianism and Latin Trinitarianism are logically conservative. What does that mean? It means that they don't do anything funny with the logical concepts. They just stick with the normal way in which we understand how quantifiers work, how identity works, how operators work, and all that. And then logically revisionary views, of course, say, no, we need to make some changes as far as our understanding of how these logical concepts work. And that's relative identity and ontological pluralism fall under that camp. And so in the interests of theoretical conservatism, you generally want to stick with something that we already know and already know that works, right? And so you might think, oh, we should stick with social Trinitarianism or Latin Trinitarianism because they're conservative. But you might want to reject those views if they do a really bad job at uh, really capturing the essence of the doctrine in such a way that makes it theologically and philosophically plausible. And that's why I think we should reject it and move to something that's logically revisionary. The thing with social Trinitarianism, it's not clear at all how you get a monotheistic view from that, right? And so remember the claim you had, this one claim there is it's an X such as X is a G. We have a lot of questions about this particular entity right here, right? Is this individual also God, right? Well, then you probably have four gods. Not good. How is this individual related to the other three individuals? Lots of questions, and there haven't been very many good answers to these questions, and there's been some extensive discussion. Same thing with Latin Trinitarianism, right? You see you have three different sorts of entities, and they're expressed with predicates, but it looks like, right, so the, the main charge leveled against Latin uh, Trinitarianism is that it sort of flirts with what's considered to be a heresy called modalism, that Father, Son, and Spirit, they're not people, they're just like masks or something. They're just sort of uh, these kinds of uh, roles that God takes. And if you express Father, Son, Spirit with predicates and you say that, well, you know, you have an individual that's God then also is a member of these predicates and that these predicates are different, you need to say something more about those predicates or otherwise it's going to look a lot like modalism. And it's not clear whether Leftow succeeds in giving us an account that explains the distinction between these that's enough to get us something like three persons rather than just three roles, right? Are these life streams considered people? Or are they just, you know, I don't know. So these views seem really, really implausible. I, I don't know. I, I just find them entirely dissatisfying. And so I think it's worth the cost to move on to something that might be logically revisionary. And we're talking about God, right? And when you talk about God, it's not like you're talking about chairs and tables. You're talking about something that's difficult to understand. So maybe you need a different language right, to talk about an entity that's really, really different from us and from the things that we ordinarily experience. So that's one process of elimination. So we take two views off the table because they just don't seem to cut it. They don't seem to do the job. So that leaves us with two views in competition. This family of alternative identity, like relative identity and then the sort of the constitution view that Brauer and Ray defend, versus ontological pluralism. So here, I mean, obviously, you know, I can't, I'm not going to give you anything that you know, resembles a knockdown argument against relative identity in favor of ontological pluralism. All, all I can do is just kind of raise some sort of considerations. You guys can think about it. You tell me what you think. 
both views the plausibility of their application to the, uh, you know, the problem of the Trinity will, of course, depend on their plausibility, their kind of standalone plausibility as a thesis about logic or about language. And so if you think relative identity is implausible on its own, then, of course, its application to the Trinity is also going to be kind of, you know, a non-starter. And so a lot of these sorts of considerations are going to come from just examining these views on their own. A couple things to consider. First, you have intuitions regarding primitiveness, conceptual primitiveness. A lot of people think that identity is primitive. Absolute identity is primitive. And some people think that, a lot of people might think that existential quantification is primitive. Where do your intuitions lie? I think that identity is primitive. Like relative identity seems like a kind of a concept that's built out of like sortals and primitive identity. Maybe you don't share that intuition, but that's something to take into consideration. Second, what sorts of inferences are licensed using these logical concepts and which ones are blocked? And so I say ontological pluralism, you still keep all of the sort of traditional inferences that you get in predicate logic. But if you go to relative identity, it seems like you lose out on certain kinds of inferences. For instance, if you buy into relative identity, it seems like you lose the indiscernibility of identicals. And people use that to make inferences all the time. If you say, for instance, oh, wait a minute, you know, Billy the Kid, that's, that individual's identical to William Bonney, right? You find out it's an alias, then you come to this conclusion that William Bonney must also be a criminal, right? And you can't get to that conclusion unless you use the indiscernibility of identicals to warrant that inference. But if you don't have that anymore, you can't draw that conclusion. You can't gain any new knowledge, right? And that seems like a cost for relative identity. Third, so like I said, fundamentality is big in metaphysics literature. And there's this uh, thought, and it seems plausible, that if you want to talk about God, if you can talk about God, you would think that you would want to talk about God using your best fundamental ideology, your fundamental language. Because, you know, if you're a theist, you, might, you should think that God is fundamental, right? And so the question then is, well, ontological pluralism versus relative identity. Are these good languages to talk about things at the fundamental level? So people who defend ontological pluralism defend it for that reason, that it does do a great job at carving, uh, you know, carving nature, and in this case, carving God at his joints. Relative identity, is it also a good joint carving language? I say not really. Again, we can talk about that more, right? You can kind of get into that if you'd like. And finally, applications. What can these theories do for us? And so people, oftentimes, they sell relative identity because it provides solutions not just to problem of the Trinity, but you get puzzles in like material constitution and stuff like that. Ontological pluralism is also very fruitful, right? You can think about how it can use in all sorts of different ways in theology. Christology, right? Incarnation problem, right? Christ exists in two different ways, right? You have this sort of tension between God and the Bible and God of philosophers. Well, God exists in two ways, right? God exists in such a way that he can relate to us or feel emotions and all that stuff while at the you know, same time existing as this sort of perfect, perfect being. And so we can use it in lots of different ways to explain these sorts of theological issues. Can relative identity do that for us? Maybe, maybe not. Okay. So these are some things to think about right? as to whether or not one theory is to be preferred over the other. But of course, it just kind of depends on where your intuitions lie. So I'm interested in hearing from you guys. So I'm done. Let's talk. What do you guys think? Yeah, all right. Mm -hmm. do have absolute identity and absolute distinctness. Yeah. So one would say that the father is absolutely not identical with the son, etc. Mm -hmm. So we get that. Yeah. Okay. Second of all, relative identity is more conservative than your view, mm -hmm. because your view messes around with quantifiers with logical machinery. Yeah. Identity is 
predicate. It just happens we have a special little symbol for it, but it's just a predicate, right? Third of all, as regards, so margin server, third of all, as regards inferences and mm -hmm. of indiscernibles, while relative identity doesn't have indiscernibility of identicals uh, across the board, mm -hmm. in all of identity relation, it's an indiscernibility relation with respect to a certain set of properties. So mm -hmm. you do get all your inferences you want, and you don't get inferences that you don't want, but it's it allows you to make those inferences, okay. right? And also, it's fruitful because those properties figure in identity criteria. And when we're interested in substantive questions about identity, the question of personal identity, or ship of Theseus identity or anything, then we're talking about these identity criteria. So here, relative identity is exceptionally fruitful. Okay, so let me address two of those points. Oh, and one more point. Yeah. Okay. I don't think there are any joints to cut along, and that's why. Well. Okay, okay, fair enough. So, two of those points. First, it's not clear to me when we're talking about conservati conservatism. It's true that identity is a predicate, but we have intuitions that it's not like uh, the same, it, it's not on a par with like, you know, being polka dotted or something like that, right? It seems like it's a, about as uh, fundamental a predicate as you can get, or it's, 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 it's definitely unique. You know, it's, it's special enough to warrant, like, you know, its own special symbol and you know, it's certain, certain kind of rules of behavior involving transitivity and symmetry and all of that. And so it's not clear to me that uh, relative identity is more in keeping with, I don't know, your logical orthodoxy simply because it's changing something that's a predicate rather as changing something that's a quantifier. So it's hard, yeah, I know, issues regarding conservatism is tough to, tough to sort out, right? I don't know how to like, judge intuitions about that sort of stuff. And then secondly, you say that your view has absolute identity in the sense that the Father, Son, and Spirit are absolutely distinct. But you still need another relation to talk about how they are also the same God. And so you're still introducing another piece of logical machinery. And so in that sense, there's still an ideological cost. And so I, did, I didn't really talk about Brower and Ray's view, they have something similar. And um, my own criticism is that I just can't understand how you can have numerical sameness without identity. I, it just, it does not make sense to me. It's like saying you have an existential quantifier that's not ontologically committing or something like that. I mean, it just, they're so closely related that it's just hard for me to imagine how they can be separated. But it's just my own intuition, right? Yeah. Oh, the backwards E is a quantifier, and it means there exists, or there is something? What, what does E, backwards E, with a little one next to it mean? Oh, that means that there is, so in ontological, ontological pluralism, there are distinct, there are multiple right. quantifiers that are not inter- What they mean other than they're different. I mean, this just feels like the problem of the Trinity again. They're different. We can't say what's different about them. But, I mean, you have to just tell us more about what is different about backwards E with a little one next to it and backwards E with a little two next to it. Oh, I don't know. Yeah, so you might have like, uh, so a lot of times, um, I was just saying, yeah, they're different, but you can label that difference if you'd like. Um, I don't know if anything hangs on it. For instance, like people talk about the difference between abstract and concrete entities, and they might have like a E sub A and then right. E sub CX, right? So I don't know. That's not what you want. Oh, no, no, no. So can we say more about the difference, right, of being... I don't know, like uh, there, there exists uh, a way of being, a Trinitarian way of being, such that you have three persons, and there exists a monotheistic way of being, such that you have one God, right? I don't know if that's really going to shed any more light. 
And this is obviously just a formal solution, and so you know, maybe that's an important question to ask, whether or not we can say more about how God exists in different ways and in, uh, what those different ways amount to. It's, it's important to note that for all of these views, you're kind of pushing a mystery around into a different part of the carpet, right? That lump in the carpet. And so it, a lot of times, considering these different views amounts to like, where do you think is the best place to put this mystery, right? Where's the best place to push the lump in the carpet? And so how is it that God exists in different ways? It might be, that might be where the mystery is. Is it plausible to consider that the mystery rather than saying, well, what is this entity that social Trinitarians point to and how is it related to the three persons, right? So yeah, it's a legit question, something that I guess I'll have to, if I continue doing more research, I might have to say more about that. Yeah. I mean, you just said it's, it's kind of a formal solution. I think it sort of is searching for a metaphysical justification. I mean, when we say, you know, in your OP1, mm -hmm. you know, that there is a being, in one domain, there's a being which is God and which is the Father. Mm -hmm. And then, oh, by the way, in this different domain, uh, there's a being which is God, and anything in that domain which is God is the same as that being. Yeah. It just doesn't seem like we switch domains. <laughs> More needs to be said about what, what these domains are, I think, and why. Oh, yeah. I mean, it, it, that's... Um... But one other related problem is, and it's a problem that affects all the views in different ways. I mean, rational reconstruction is one thing, but if we're trying to say that this is the view that, you know, fourth and fifth century councils came up with, and which Christians have always been obligated to believe, then that's difficult. Yeah, see, so I'm, I'm, I'm really bad at history. So I'm never going to be, uh, like, uh, you can ask. We, we need a metaphysical story that they might have at least sort of vaguely been gesturing at. Uh, yeah, again, like, uh, I'm not going to try to do any kind of, like, serious interpretive work as far as, like, what councils or what significant historical figures have thought about uh, with regards to any kind of doctrine. I know Chris actually has done some work and has found you know, some textual evidence to think that people do, it was natural for people to talk about ways of being and that being can be said in different ways. I, I think that was a quote from Aristotle and that you know, he uses the talk about analogy from Aquinas right, as some textual support for you know, talking about ways of existing. Right? And so he thinks that there is some historical pedigree for this view. I mean, they, obviously they weren't thinking of it in terms of semantically primitive existential quantifiers but that's just you know, a toy to kind of just express like this kind of intuition that people may have had. So you know, there might be some. Maybe you had fundamentally different kinds of being when you're talking about God and then when you're talking about everything else. But of course, your two, your two propositions here have, have both to do with God. Oh, yeah, yeah. So it is an extension. And yeah, I don't know if any kind of discussion like that exists in which like, you know, God exists in different ways, right? Because it's true that you know, people talk about God being fundamentally different from the rest of creation. That's certainly true, but then when we're talking about God, yeah, yeah, I don't know, I guess, uh, God, I don't, I don't have to read, okay, well, I guess I'll have to, right, I'll have to go, go look and see what people may have said, if they've said anything that was suggestive of this notion, right, good, yeah? Um, so, I think two things, one is, mm -hmm. the talk, it seems really relevant if the talk in, um, <coughs> that either influenced the, the um, authors of these creeds, mm -hmm. or, um, or that they actually held, if it talks about ways of being and it's inconsistent with this, which may be um, what's being brought up over here. So right, right, right. We talk about ways of being, but it's, it is specifically God's way of being and 
other things would be. And that would be, it would, it would suggest that they were thinking about this and they totally rejected this view. Okay, yeah, that's certainly true. Um, I have no idea. Yeah, so I, I'm, just, I'm, I'm not positive. I know I've read things that do seem to talk about um, ways of being, and I had some brief interaction with Chris about this. Mm -hmm. I'm not sure exactly which way he wants to, he want to go with it. Another worry I have is sure. it, it sounds like these, that these different quantifiers are linked with some sort of predicate. Right? So how do we pick the domain about which we're, can you, actually, can you say more about how we pick the domain for, which, uh, for these quantifiers to range over? Because if it's, say, linked with all the abstract objects, Mm -hmm. it, sounds like, it sounds like there's there's something we say that selects for us all those objects. Unless you're going to take the set membership in the primitive. In which case, I don't know what we're talking about. You know, likewise with concrete. So how the domains are constructed, um, obviously the, you know, what we have right now is purely formal. How they're constructed, how they're populated. Um, I mean, like, I guess... We just kind of, uh, we're going to have to do a, a sort of a, uh, a mix of things, right? We just look at how we talk about things in fundamental sciences, and we try to see, read between the lines and see if there's really something like, some kind of linguistic behavior that suggests that there's a really deep connection. Like we might think, for instance, that, you know, a sentence like, I don't know, um, the number seven tastes funny or something like that. So we think that there's something deeply problematic about that sentence more than the fact that it's false, that it's somehow like nonsensical at a deeper level. And that might be explained by the fact that you're mixing domains where you shouldn't be, right? And so a lot of times we may kind of do this kind of backwards engineering and try to find uh, these sorts of domains and construct them just based on like uh, what we interpret when we hear people talk, especially when people are talking or when you think they're talking at this, in, in this sort of fundamental language like ontologies. Though that generates in a very different way than the Trinitarian one does, right? Because mm -hmm. what if you, with with um, talking about, say, like category errors of that sort, mm -hmm. um, you'd be generating it by by saying, "Oh, well, um, these two things—they're they're very, very different, and and we can't we can't apply them in this sort of way." Mm -hmm. But all we have is sort of a, a a denial and an affirmation in the case of the Trinitarian formulas, right? And it sounds like oh yeah, I, how do we know that we're getting that these are actually trapped. So it's true that, you know, it's like the solution may be too easy, right? That's, the, that's a lot of times like what might raise suspicions about formal solutions like pluralism or relative identity, right? That it's just, it seems like you're cheating, right? And so, uh, you know, yeah, uh, what, 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 what can I say more to motivate the idea that, you know, God might exist in two different ways? Um, I mean... Yeah, so there are two, they are two, two separate questions. So the first question, I mean, uh, I go back to like what I talked about as far as like this sort of duality of God, right? The kind of God that you read in like, you know, a scriptural narrative seems very, very different from the kind of God that, you know, philosophers theorize about. And like, you know, I don't know, like you go to church and, you know, you ask people, what's the point of praying if God already knows what's going to happen to you and what's the best for you? What's the point of, you know, participating in all these sorts of like religious practices? Right? It seems like your, your view about God is highly consistent with your practices. And so that difference right there might be something that leads to like, this idea that, well, maybe there are different ways in which God exists. Right? So that might be like getting your foot in the door. 
and saying, okay, well, you know, it's not, it's not a crazy idea to think that God is different in these ways. Okay, well now, how do I get from there to the idea that God exists in different ways in this specific sense, that God exists as a unity and as a trinity? One thing is like, I, I talked about this a little bit in the paper that I wrote, and I don't know how much, how far it'll go, but you might say that Christianity, there's a close relationship between Christianity and Judaism, right? That people think that there's this kind of like shared heritage and Christianity is somehow linked in a, a special way to Judaism that it isn't with other religions, right? But of course, Judaism is monotheistic and Christians claim to be worshiping the same God that Jews worship. How is that possible? How is it possible that you're worshiping the same God as Jews when Jews say there's only one God and Christians believe in the Trinity? And so, well, maybe one way is that, you know, God, there, there are two ways. God exists in two ways. And what happens is Christians affirm two quantifiers that range over God in different ways, whereas Jews only affirm that there is one quantifier, right? And that God is, you know, purely monotheistic. Maybe, yeah. You know? I was wondering, um, so you introduce ontological pluralism in order to solve Trinitarian problems. Mm-hmm. But I was wondering, you mentioned fundamentality mm -hmm. and grounding and so yeah. I'm wondering if you have any other reasons outside of like philosophical theology that introducing um, ontological pluralism can do work to. Because I mean, it'd be cool. It, I think it'd like sort of boost your case if you can be like, oh, and by the way, I'm using it to solve the clay and the statue, you know, something like that. I mean, there's probably a way in which you can use it to solve like those familiar puzzles. Uh, the approach that people who defend the view have taken is just that it, it really sort of um, coheres well with our intuitions about how things are distinguished in the world and that it works great as a fundamental language. And so it's kind of like, um, it's a good sort of uh, ground level language. And that's usually the argument given in favor of it. And yeah, if it can do more work beyond that and like, uh, you know, tell it, explain like, you know, paradoxes involving the ship of Theseus and stuff like that, more power to it, I guess. I think those things are more like feathers on your cap. I, I tend to think that even if it doesn't provide a direct solution to those sorts of issues, it's still worth considering because it seems to be very attractive as a fundamental language. Just like you might you know, talk about like, uh, you know, other sorts of linguistic uh, resources that we have that we think are very uh, joint carving, even though those sorts of resources don't give us direct solutions to metaphysical puzzles, we still think that it's uh, ideologically attractive. So as an ideological thesis, I think it's still attractive. Yeah, I don't know, or I don't even think that it can be used in the same way that relative identity can be used to solve puzzles. But take a look and see, you know, maybe you know, get more papers out of that. Excellent. So just uh, to push maybe a more contemporary way on something similar to what Dale and Bill were saying, yeah. but the fundamentality, you said, well, here's the reason that's attractive. Um, you know, we want to be able to carve nature in deep ways, and certainly God's very deep. God's very fundamental, so we can talk about the sort of things we, if we think that there are ways of being in fundamental ways that mm -hmm. we include here. But it seems that sorts of things that push theists to want to say, well, God's the most fundamental, are also going to really make theists reluctant to say there's a kind of really deep bifurcation in God, that there's sort of um, uh, the most fundamental entity, the sort of first cause of everything, it's got this, I don't understand this sort of ways of being language, and maybe, maybe I'm mistaken what you're trying to say, but when you talk about a deep bridge, deep gulf between abstract and concrete objects, you right. don't want that kind of deep gulf. Right, so you might think that God is simple or God is like this like fundamental unity or whatever. And that might be something that 
would uh, make you resistant to this idea? Yeah, sure. I don't know. I don't share those intuitions about. I, 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 I don't. I don't. Think God is super simple. <laughs> <laughs> should be sort of. You know, so it's okay for God to have some like. Oh. Uh, yeah, this is where like I get out to. I'm out in sea now, right? Like, um, how complex or how like does God have joints? How deep should those joints go? As far as like these distinctions about God and all of that. Yeah, I mean, I don't particularly. Sh- so here's the thing, right? A lot. The Jello theory of God. My dissertation is about methodology in metaphysics and a lot of times like a lot of these sorts of concerns come down to like I have this intuition and you have this intuition how do we resolve this let's just keep banging on tables until one of us loses our voice or something like that and then I, the other person wins right I mean I don't know how to resolve like if you have this intuition that God's joints don't go that deep and I don't I don't know what can we what we can appeal to that can resolve disputes like that and if you know of a way then please you know talk to me because that'll solve like all kinds of pure disagreement issues as well right yeah, I don't know. <laughs> but you know, thank yeah, it's good to think about. All right. Thanks guys. <laughs>